Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. The book of Hebrews, chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 14 through 18, and considering the greatness of the incarnation. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Give attention to God's holy word. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us, and to accomplish all things necessary for our salvation, including purchasing the great gift of the covenant, your Holy Spirit. And we pray now, O Lord, according to his merits, that you would pour out your Spirit into our hearts, that we, through this time of preaching, might see and hear wonderful things in your law. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. I love this time of year. In uh, the springtime, we get to see the plants blooming and growing once again. We get to plant our gardens after we've built our sheds, and uh, the trees are coming to life once again. But what you also notice during the springtime is some of the branches on the trees no longer have any life. They, they no longer produce leaves. They, they no longer put out their shoots during the season when the shoots should be put out. Now, of course, there's two kinds of branches that do this. At my house, our front yard is surrounded by two very large oak trees. So we have lots of sticks in the grass. Those kinds of sticks, we don't expect to put out any leaves because they are disconnected from the trunk. They're totally separated. They're not united to the source of life. But there are other branches, and one of the oak trees in front of our house suffers from this problem. The the other kind of branch is still on the tree. It's still connected outwardly to the trunk of the tree, but inwardly, something has gone wrong. There is union with the trunk, but there's no communion with the life-giving sap. Whatever has gone wrong, that branch is dead, just as dead as the one that's in the grass. And we know this because there is no life being shown. There, is no, there are no leaves being put out. This illustration from the trees is the same kind of illustration that the Lord uses to describe our life with Christ. John chapter 15, the parable of the vine, hopefully a very famous uh, parable and chapter to you. And Christ speaks about in that passage, 
If you are abiding in my word, you will be united to me, and in union with me, I will commune with you and give you life. You'll bear fruit. You'll put out leaves at the appropriate season. Well, likewise, in our salvation and in every act of God's salvation, whether it was the Old Testament or the New Testament, God saves us by doing two things, uniting us to himself and communing with us through the means of grace. These are really the the two acts that God accomplishes, union and communion. This is the whole substance of our salvation in the old as well as the new. Now, if I were to ask you, in the Old Testament, what was the one great event that defined the covenant community? What was the one thing that God did to uh, save, to deliver Israel, and to establish the way that he would commune with them? Well, if you're thinking biblically, and I, and I hope you are, the great event of the Old Testament that defined Israel's relationship with Jehovah was the exodus from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt is the central act of God in the Old Testament to redeem his people. And everything that comes after the exodus is defined and understood in reference to the exodus. Now... When we think about the Exodus, we sometimes think about uh, the movie The Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and the, the great wonders and plagues that God performed in attacking the Egyptians and humbling them. Now, the, the book of Exodus talks about these things. There, there are many events that happen in the context of the Exodus. But there is one central thing God was doing. In all of the events and all of the miracles that happened under the ministry of Moses, God was doing one thing with the nation of Israel. He was bringing them into union and communion with himself. By delivering them from Egypt, he brought Israel into covenant union with himself. And by establishing the tabernacle and the high priesthood, He was establishing communion with himself. The result of the exodus was that Israel was now united to Jehovah and they could commune with Jehovah through the high priesthood of Aaron. What we're going to see in this passage then is the greatness of the incarnation and the greatness of the incarnation is that through the incarnation... God accomplishes a greater exodus. Through the incarnation, God unites us with himself and communes with us through Christ. In the incarnation, God has done what the exodus only typified. It actually accomplishes union and communion with God in Christ. We're going to see two things in this passage. Verses 14 through 16 is union. Verses 17 through 18 is communion. Verses 14 through 16 is union. 
And verses 17 through 18 is communion. Now, before we get into the the details of these two points, I, I want to go a little bit further on the Exodus parallel. Part of my training in seminary and, and part of the way that I look at the scriptures, which, which I believe is a, is a scriptural way to look at them, and, and part of the reason we're looking at the book of Hebrews is to help us as a congregation read God's word in a biblical, theological fashion. Biblical theology is a way of looking at the scriptures and noticing patterns, themes, how things are repeated and developed over the course of the scriptures. One of the biblical scholars that we studied, I I believe he's right about this, he said, in the scriptures, there's really only one thing that ever happens, and that's the exodus. Every cycle of story that happens in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is really the exodus replayed with different characters and in a different setting. What we find here in this passage is that the author of Hebrews is describing the incarnation with Exodus themes. He's using Exodus language and motifs to highlight for us the greatness of the incarnation. A couple of things to keep in mind more broadly about what the scriptures teach on this point. Turn to Micah, turn to the uh, minor prophet Micah. Chapter 7. This is one of my favorite passages. We preached on the book of Micah several years ago. But this is one of the clearest passages that highlights this theme. The exodus of the Old Testament is the pattern of what God will do in the New Testament. uh, Micah 7 verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like the serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Notice a couple things. Just as when I brought you out of the land of Egypt, I will show wonders. Notice the result of God's work here. The nations will fear. That was the result of the exodus. Notice also that as God delivers his people, he destroys their enemies. How? During the exodus, how were the Egyptians defeated? By being cast into the depths of the sea. Notice he says, your sins will be cast into the depths of the sea. And then finally in verse 20, notice the people that God will do this for. Truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham. Now we're going to go back and look at Exodus 3 a little bit later on, but I want you to see here, 
As in the land of Egypt, I will defeat your sins and show wonders to the nations. Well, if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, I have the wrong reference, but in in the Gospel of Luke, the, the event of the transfiguration, when Luke records Christ up on Mount Tabor during the transfiguration, it says that Moses and Elijah were with him discussing his exodus. It actually uses the word in Greek, exodus. Now, this is a reference to the cross. Well, now we come back to Hebrews chapter 2. Notice at this point, broadly speaking, when the scriptures speak about what God will accomplish in Christ, it uses exodus themes and language. But even more pointedly in the book of Hebrews, we have more clues. First, remember who this letter is written to. It's written to Hebrews, who would have self-identified with the events of the Exodus. In fact, the Hebrew mindset during this this time period was infused with Exodus themes and language. They would have understood everything about themselves in the context of the Exodus. But notice also in Hebrews chapter 2, The author is persuading these people to not neglect this great salvation. Well, if you were a Jew and you heard somebody say, this is a great salvation, the bar that you would have to surpass, this salvation would have to be greater than the exodus under Moses. That's the standard for the Jew. If it's not greater than the exodus, it's not a great salvation. So the author of Hebrews has to teach them It is greater than the Exodus. This is greater than what Moses accomplished. Furthermore, notice in chapter 3, just after our passage, when the author concludes this section, he's then going to move on and talk about in verse 2, well, he says in in verse 1, consider Jesus Christ, the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted more worthy than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Notice that from this point, the author is going to move forward to talk about Moses and the building of the house. Well, what happens at Mount Sinai after God gives the Ten Commandments? Moses is there leading in the building of of the house, the tabernacle. But now as we come to this passage, we get even more detail that Exodus is how we should understand this. First first notice, in union, as Christ unites with us, he comes down to our level. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. One of the things we need to understand, brothers and sisters, about God's method of saving us, about God delivering us from our sins, is that He who occupies the heights of heaven, He who is so far above all creation that the angels cover their eyes in His presence, He is the one who came down to our level. He is the one who... uh, 
not abandoned, but laid aside the glories of being God and took upon himself the form of a servant. He became one of us. And for him, this was a descent. God had to come down to our level to save us and to become incarnate. Turn to Exodus chapter 3 now. This is exactly what God does during the Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Moses is at the burning bush, and the Lord is commissioning him to deliver his people. But notice what the Lord says. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because I know their t- uh, because of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows so I have come down to deliver them from Egypt notice that as God begins to explain why he's doing what he's doing his actions begin with his coming down to save his people likewise in the incarnation Christ comes down to our level to partake of flesh and blood But for what purpose? Returning now to Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Notice the second step. God comes down, identifies with his people who are in bondage, and then performs a mighty deliverance. He comes down to defeat an enemy. In saving his people, God destroys their enemies. We see this pattern in the book of Exodus. We see this displayed here. But we see this also in Exodus 15. Turn to Exodus 15. Moses, after the crossing of the Red Sea, praises Jehovah... For his great work. But I want you to notice just a couple of verses from Exodus 15. That the the major theme in the Exodus is that God comes down to us and defeats our enemies. Exodus 15 verse 1. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior who fights for his people. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. Your right hand, verse 6, has become glorious in power. Your right hand has dashed the enemy in pieces. God comes down, identifies with his people, and defeats their enemies. Now, in the Old Testament, the enemies of God's people were the Egyptians, were the idolaters, were those who held them in bondage. This Exodus, Hebrews chapter 2 now, the, the enemy that is defeated is the one who had the power over death, that is the devil. In the incarnation, Christ identifies himself with us. He unites with our nature. And having been united with our nature, what is he now able to do? 
When Christ takes on flesh and blood, he's able to do something that God could not do. It may sound strange framing it that way, but we need to understand what the incarnation is and why it's great. There's one thing God could not do in himself. Die. God cannot suffer death. God, in fact, cannot suffer at all. He is perfectly blessed and unchangeable. But in order to save us and to deliver us, because of his great love for us, God himself took on flesh and blood so that he could die, so that he could suffer, and so that he could defeat the devil and vanquish all of our enemies through his cross. One of the things you see in this passage and and other passages that we've looked at in Hebrews chapter 2, the incarnation finds its purpose in the cross. The, the, The incarnation is looking towards the cross. The cross is the end result of the incarnation. Without the cross, the incarnation would be powerless. But with the cross... God accomplishes the thing that we needed for our salvation. Now, this is an aside. This is an application to us to help us think about things and to help us understand uh, some of the world that we live in and and some of the way that people think about Christianity and the gospel. Christmas time will roll around, and you'll hear many people talk about how wonderful it is that the baby Jesus has come. How wonderful it is that God has taken on flesh and been born. But one of the things you have to remember is the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of the child Jesus was to take on a true human nature in order to die, in order to suffer. This teaches us not only the greatness of the incarnation, but it teaches us what we really needed what we deserved. We didn't need a sweet, tender, innocent child to come and warm our hearts. We needed the incarnate Jehovah to do what we could not do for ourselves, die, and by dying, defeat our enemies. Here's another one of the the aspects of the incarnation, how great it is. Notice it says that the devil had the power of death. But Christ through death, was able to defeat the devil. You know, if you've ever studied martial arts, you've probably heard about judo. And one of the techniques of judo is that you take your enemy's or your opponent's power, his force, and use it against him. You, You do a bunch of reversals and grappling, and as he attacks, you just sort of redirect him into the hold that you want to put him into. At one level, it's, it's as if the author is telling us that Christ, through death, was able to do a reversal on Satan. Satan's chief power is the ability to kill. That's the sum and substance of everything that the devil can do. And Christ came and willingly succumbed to death and reversed it on him. This is the other aspect of the incarnation Just as God cannot die, and he had to become man in order to die, likewise, man cannot uh, bring himself back from the dead. The only one that could do this is God himself. 
because God is the source of all life, so death has no power over him. The only way that through death the devil could be defeated is if God himself died in the person of his son. Now, again, we have to be careful. I'm not saying that God in the divine nature died. I'm saying that the person of the Son who is divine took on human nature and in that human nature suffered death. But because of the union of the person, the hypostatic union, that man who died was brought back to life by the power of God and so defeated Satan. Let me put it to you simply this way. At least at this stage. The greatness of the incarnation is that the invisible God took on a visible body. The greatness of the incarnation is that God, who fills everything because of His infinite majesty, became a man and suffered and died on your behalf. This is one of the great mysteries that Paul speaks about. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, no need to turn there, just listen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, he speaks about the mystery of godliness. And the first thing he says is one of the mysterious aspects of our faith is the incarnation. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Profound mystery. Amazing miracle that God performed. Not only so, not only is the incarnation God himself taking on flesh, but it is through the incarnation that God identifies with you, that he defeats your enemies, and he delivers you from bondage. Look at what he says in verse 15. In order to save us and to unite us with himself... He had to become incarnate, he had to suffer and die, and he had to deliver us from bondage to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now again, remember our Exodus themes. Israel was in bondage. Go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, the Lord goes on as he speaks to Moses. Exodus 3, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. God is describing the bondage of his people in slavery in Egypt, and God has come to deliver them. Well, in the incarnation of Christ, we have a greater exodus and a greater deliverance. Notice the bondage that we were in. Hebrews 2, verse 15. Through their whole life, by the fear of death, were subject to bondage. You know, when somebody's in bondage, the reason we call it bondage in Egypt is because ordinarily somebody who's enslaved has some type of bond on them. 
There's some physical thing that's attached to them. It could be chains. It could actually be ropes. In the Old Testament, slaves that wanted to stay with their Hebrew family had to get an earring put in their ear. And that was a sign that they were in bondage. There's some token that they're bound to another. The bondage that's being described here is that when we were under the power of the devil, the chains that held us, the chains that kept us under, was the fear of death. It is the fear of dying that keeps people bound in Satan's service. And this is the bondage that Christ delivers us from. As an illustration, but not to judge anyone, but simply as a pungent illustration of this point, notice what goes on in our society today when it comes to physical health. It could be viruses, it could be diet, it could be exercise, it could be relieving stress. Whatever it is that has to do with physical health, notice the amount of money, time, energy, compromises and sacrifices people are willing to make to put death off one more day. To to try and stave off death and decay. And this fear of death keeps people in bondage. It keeps them under Satan's power. Think about ourselves. How many times have we experienced when it, when it comes time to do the right thing, the fears arise in our hearts. The, the fears come up and cloud our conscience. They, they direct us to, well, I don't want to endure this. I, I don't want to go through this. I, I don't know what they're going to do. And you see how the fear of death comes into our minds and keeps us in bondage to doing Satan's will. Well, Christ has delivered us through the incarnation, but he doesn't deliver everybody. He doesn't deliver all mankind. Christ's death and the incarnation is only for one specific group of people. And he describes that in verse 16 now. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, this is a very interesting verse, is it not? We would expect... When he talks about the incarnation, as he is in this passage, we would have expected him to say he doesn't give aid to angels, he gives aid to men or human beings or or mankind, something like that. That's not what he says. He says the seed of Abraham. Now again, remember the Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. The Lord comes to Moses And says, I have seen the oppression. I have come to deliver my people just as I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Old Testament exodus was for the seed of Abraham. Just as the New Testament exodus is for the seed of Abraham. But, we know that the seed of Abraham doesn't just mean the physical seed of Abraham. We know that the seed of Abraham doesn't just mean ethnic Israel. We know that the reason Abraham is called God's friend is because first, God chose Abraham, and Abraham 
believed God. You see, this description of the seed of Abraham at this point is a description of the elect. The the elect whom God has chosen from all eternity are those whom God has set His love upon and they, when they're brought to new spiritual life, put their faith in God. That's Abraham's story. He was selected out of all the nations in the world and then he believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. And so this union with Christ, the, the, the salvation that God accomplishes for us through the incarnation is that God unites himself to us and then we unite with him by faith. Now, those of you that do believe in Christ, those of you who are united by faith, I, I want you to notice some things in verse 16. First, the, your version might say like mine does, give aid to, that, that word right there, give aid to, uh, or perhaps your version says, he does not take up or take unto himself angel, the, the seed of angels. Uh, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Th- this word in Greek is really hard to translate. That's why we have these different translations. It, essentially, the word means to snatch, to, to grab up with intensity and force. Really, what the word is talking about is, uh, as you can imagine, as a father with little children, there are several occasions when I'm playing with them and they're about to take a tumble. And as their father wanting to protect them and to save them, I have to rush over and snatch them up really quick. I have to get them out of the street. I have to get them off of the steps. I have to get them out of the way of a falling branch from that one oak tree which has all those dead branches. I have to snatch them up. This is the word that the author is using to talk about how God saves you. God, seeing your danger through the incarnation, comes and snatches you out of the lion's mouth. He comes and takes you up as a father takes up his son and delivers you from the danger. That's the word that's being used. Secondly, those of you who believe in Christ, those of you who have union with Him, enjoy a privilege higher than the angels. Notice what He says. God doesn't do this for angels. God does not deliver the angels in this way. God does not run to them as their father and snatch them out of the lion's mouth and carry them to glory but he does it for you. He does it for the seed of Abraham. He does it for those whom he calls his friend. You know, if you go back and look at the Old Testament and how Abraham is described, the one thing that comes out is that Abraham is described as the friend of God. Abraham was the one man in the Old Testament that God said, this is my friend. I love him. I will protect him. I will nurture him. I will give him my covenant and bless his offspring because he's my friend. In the Gospel of John, Christ is telling the disciples as he's about to depart to the cross, I have called you friends. 
because I'm telling you everything that I'm going to do. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, God looks at you as his friend, and he has snatched you out of the lion's mouth by his almighty power in the incarnation. But not only so, as he has united with you, he also wants to commune with you. And that's what we look at in the next two verses. Verses 17 and 18. Union is unto communion. You know, when a, when a man and a woman fall in love, they take marriage vows and they unite as husband and wife. But the purpose of that union is so that those two now can commune together throughout their whole lives. Likewise, when we see two young people who are communing as husband and wife, but they haven't united as husband and wife, we recognize that that's out of order. And so the the communion that he speaks about here, that we're going to look at, is only for those who have united with Christ as their husband. Those who have entered into a covenant relationship with him by faith, just as Abraham did. God called Abraham and said, leave your father's house, go to the land of which I will show you, and Abraham believed God and followed him. And so likewise, for all of us here under the preaching of the gospel, if you have not put your trust in Christ, you must put your trust in Christ. Because the mercy that we're going to look at, the benefits of Christ's salvation, only come to those who believe in him. Only comes to those who are united to him by faith who have put their trust in Him and Him alone. And for those who have trusted in Christ, for those who are like Abraham, walking according to God's Word in faith and reliance upon Him, He communes with you. Look at what He says in now 17 and 18. There's two aspects to this communion. And it really has to do with the nature of a mediator. You know what the word mediator means. Christ is called our mediator. A mediator, the word literally means somebody that goes between. He's someone that it, it goes between two parties. And so Christ's mediation has two aspects to it. One is towards God and one is towards you. Verse 17, he speaks about towards God. What does Christ do for us? Therefore... In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, firstly, in things pertaining to God, that, uh, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in our union and communion with Christ, in reference to God, what Christ does through the incarnation is make sacrifices and offerings for sin. He, through his incarnation, provides a covering for our sins. Notice the language that's used here is propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice or or some other act that covers over the sins of the one for whom it is offered. So if you have sin on you, 
your sin has to be propitiated. It has to be purged and cleansed so that you can enter into God's presence. Notice it says here that Christ does that for those he's united to. But what I want you to notice, this is a continual work of Christ. This is not something he does once and that's it. He continually offers up a propitiation for our sins. And he does it through the incarnation. The rest of the book of Hebrews is going to unfold this. So I won't spend a lot of time on this right now, but I want you to notice one very important thing. Just as it was through death that he delivered us from the devil and bondage, likewise, it is through his death on the cross that he offers up these propitiations for our sins. Now, his death on the cross was the one perfect, never-to-be-repeated offering for sin for all eternity, amen and amen. But what Christ now does in our human nature, with the scars on his hands and with the virtue of his cross, is he pleads in the Father's presence as our high priest, saying, forgive them, have mercy on them, Look at my blood. Don't look at their guilt. He continually offers propitiation for you. Now consider how this was greater than the Exodus. I said I won't spend a lot of time, but this is is the heart of what Christ does for us. After Israel's delivered from Egypt, Moses is told to build the tabernacle and to anoint his brother Aaron as high priest. Within Exodus and Leviticus then, Leviticus also is happening at Mount Sinai. All of that stuff happens at the Exodus. Aaron is told, you can only go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. You offer all the sacrifices I've ordained. You can come in once a year and pray before the glory seat and the mercy seat. Aaron then had to come out, and they had to wait an entire year before he could come into God's presence again. The reason for this is that there was no sufficient sacrifice. Notice how this is greater. Christ has offered the sufficient sacrifice, and he never leaves the Holy of Holies. He never departs out of God's presence. He is always there at the throne of God the Father, pleading and praying for his people. So this is what God does for us. This is what Christ does for us in communion with him. There is a very practical application for us here. When you sin, you go to Christ in prayer. You confess it to him as soon as you are convicted of it. Because Christ ever lives to plead for you. Remember, Our union with Christ is based upon His work in the incarnation. And our entire salvation depends upon His work in the incarnation. Including the continual need that we have for the forgiveness of sins. You see, when God saved you, He knew you were going to sin again. When God brought you into union with Himself... He is not surprised when you stumble and fall and walk contrary to his ways. That's why he's provided the high priest. 
That's why Christ is ever in the throne room pleading for his people because his people continually need a propitiation. Look at what John says in chapter 2 of 1 John. Chapter 2 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. God doesn't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Notice that language. An advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The reason that Christ is called the advocate and the reason he is able to obtain forgiveness of your sins is because his blood is sufficient. He doesn't have to come down again and die. He doesn't have to re-offer himself. He offered himself once and now on your behalf he ever lives and pleads for you. Not only does Christ offer this to God on our behalf, but he also communes with us. Remember, he's a mediator. He goes between. He does things in reference to God, obtaining forgiveness, and then in reference to us, he brings us mercy. Look at what it says. Verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted... He is able to aid those who are tempted. Notice that the author describes Christ as a merciful and faithful high priest. In him pleading his blood before the Father, no matter how many times his people sin, he's being faithful. Christ offered his blood to cleanse us from our sins. His blood is sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. So when Christ prays for you, he always prays his own blood. He's a faithful high priest. But he's also a merciful high priest. Look at what it says in verse 18. First off, Christ has suffered not only to atone for our sins, but also to enter into human experience. You see, Christ in the incarnation took on human flesh to die because God cannot die by nature. He cannot. God also cannot suffer. By nature, God is impossible for him to suffer because he's perfect and unchangeable. But mankind dies. Mankind suffers. Mankind is tempted to sin. And so in order to save us, God had to become man to die on our behalf, but also to experience suffering as one of us, to feel what it is like to suffer, be tempted, and almost snap. You know, my kids and I sometimes will we'll pick up sticks in the yard because of that oak tree. And when you pick up the sticks and maybe you burn a fire, or maybe you have a little campfire, you know the way to tell which sticks will burn properly, right? The best ones to burn are the ones that will snap. When you snap it, it has that nice, crisp crack when you snap it. 
Sometimes, though, if you try to take a living branch from the tree and and you try to snap it, it it won't snap. In fact, it won't bend. It probably won't break. And and you have to twist it and turn it and, and try and do something if you don't have a knife, of course. And so this is often what it means, what it's like when we suffer, isn't it? When God in his providence brings sufferings to us, it's as if he takes his hands and puts them on our souls and starts bending and starts pulling. Uh, He starts seeing, are they going to snap? Now, to the wicked, he wants them to snap. He's trying to get them to snap because God does not save anybody except his people. He saves the seed of Abraham. But in your life, if you're in union with Christ, God does come and test the branch. He comes to see what's happening. Will it snap or will it hold firm? And he has provided Christ as a merciful priest to help us when we suffer because he's experienced suffering. He's experienced temptation. He has experienced what it's like when God the Father begins to twist, begins to put pressure. He's been through it. Now, a couple of questions arise at this point. First, Christ did this not because he needed to. God is infinite in knowledge and all things. And so he didn't need to experience suffering to know what suffering was like. He needed to experience suffering so that you and I would be persuaded to trust in him. You see, Christ went through these sufferings for your sake, not for his sake. He went through these trials to give you an example, to give you someone that you could identify with. Isn't this amazing, what God has done in the incarnation? In no other religion is the deity one that we can identify with personally. In no other religion does God become man except in the incarnation, except in the gospel of Christ. He does it for your sake. He does it so that you will have a priest you can identify with, but also so that you will have a priest who's able to help. You know, that oak tree in my yard, my neighbor's yard actually, we get some pretty high winds around here. And, and I just planted a couple of trees in my front yard. They're still saplings. And sometimes I wonder, when the wind comes, are they going to make it? Thankfully, they've made it thus far. I don't worry about the oak tree, though, do I? Because that oak tree has been united to the dirt, and it's been communing with the dirt for nigh on 100 years. One of them is probably that old. Because this tree has been united and it's been communing with the nutrients in the soil, it grows over time stronger and stronger and stronger. And it is able to withstand all of the winds that come upon it. Likewise in the Christian life, as you want to grow with Christ, that will come from communing with Christ. Just as the branches of the tree over time 
they grow stronger and thicker and able to withstand more suffering, your strength will come from communing with him, from going to him as your merciful high priest. And it is, it is as you go to him that he gives you the mercy that you need. He gives you the help that you need. Now, we do this in one primary way. That's through worship. Worship is private, family, or public. And, and I just want to conclude with this thought. The greatness of the incarnation is that God has accomplished a greater exodus through his son. But understand what the end result of the exodus was. What was God doing? He was exalting his name. He was defeating the enemies. He was delivering his people. But where was it all going? Look at Exodus 15. Exodus 15, verse 14. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 11. Who is like you, O O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold on the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, and even more so by the greatness of the incarnation, they will be still as a stone till your people pass over Till the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You see, the end goal of the Exodus, the purpose, was for God to bring his people to himself forever. We enjoy the foretaste of that by engaging in public, private, and family worship. So I encourage you, as God has accomplished a greater exodus through the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus, go to Him in worship. Go to Him. You're here in public worship, do it privately. Do it in your families. And you'll receive grace upon grace and mercy for help in time of need. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the greatness of the incarnation. That in the person of your son, God himself has become one of us and died and deliver us from our oppressors. We pray, O Lord, you would help us this day to set aside all the thoughts of Egypt and to focus only on the thoughts of Zion, that we might receive grace upon grace and mercy from our high priest. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.